Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. As Israel tightens its grip on Gaza, the leader of the leftist Labour Party, Merav Mikhaili, tells me why she's leaving politics. Then, who should represent the Palestinians? I asked Nasser al-Kidwa, a former foreign minister for the Palestinian Authority. Plus, the United States of Autocracy, editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, Jeffrey Goldberg, talks to Walter Isaacson about the dangers of Trump 2.0. And finally, a collaboration for the ages, Hollywood's most celebrated composer, John Williams, and virtuoso violinist Anne-Sophie Mutter tell me why they're joining musical forces. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Manpour in London. There is nowhere to turn in Gaza, Palestinians say, as Israelis' stranglehold on the besieged land gets tighter and airstrikes continue to pound the enclave. But despite international pressure, Israel remains intent on eradicating Hamas, whatever it takes. Israel's national security advisor says that could be measured in weeks, even months. But the prime minister of the Palestinian Authority says it's not even possible to wipe out the group, calling Hamas, quote, an integral part of the Palestinian political mosaic. Tonight, Tonight, we attempt to look beyond the war from the perspective of future Israeli and Palestinian leadership. For that, let's remember some crucial prescience from the past. During the Oslo negotiations in the 90s, the chief Palestinian delegate told the chief Israeli delegate the following. I believe we've arrived at the root of the problem. We have learned that our rejection of you will not bring us freedom. You can see that your control of us will not bring you security. We must live side by side in peace, equality and cooperation. So let's start with Israel's Labour Party, once the dominant political force, all the way back to the founder, David Ben-Gurion. But the peace camp has lost so much credibility over the years that it's barely clinging on in Parliament. And now leader Merav Mikhaili says that she's stepping down. She joins me now from Tel Aviv. Welcome to the program. Can I start by asking you... Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Let me start by asking you first and foremost about the war uh, on Gaza. Do you believe that your country is any closer to actually materially, quote unquote, eradicating, you know, disempowering, annihilating Hamas? None of the major military leaders have been caught and there are still more than 100 Israeli hostages, innocent civilians being held. What is your assessment? 138 Israelis, some of them very elderly, sick, wounded, some of them women whom we already are aware now. Thankfully, there is an acknowledgement of what they're going through there. And this is so important for me to emphasize because it is becoming the symbol of what Hamas has been doing um, certainly did on October 7th. And when people are asking, why do we insist on eliminating the terror base that Hamas built in Gaza? I really don't understand the question. 
What do they expect from Israel to do? To just agree to live side by side with this horrific threat that came to reality, came to be on October 7th, the ferocious way it did? Uh, so to answer your question, uh, Christian, Israel has to eliminate the terror base that Hamas built in Gaza and to take it off the uh, government of uh, Gaza. We are not fighting the Palestinians, certainly not from where I stand and what I have been fighting for and Labour has been fighting for ever since it's Chak Rabin, the late Prime Minister it's Chak Rabin. But we cannot agree, and I'm very sorry uh, to hear the Palestinian Authority uh, insisting on not only not um, um, condemning what Hamas has done, but insisting on including it, not as a political power, but as part of the representation of um, Palestinians. Um, I just, just I, I hear what you're just saying, and we will obviously. We have, you know, a two-header tonight. We've got both you and uh, and and Palestinian uh, politician Nasser al Kidwa. So first, I'm asking from your perspective: Do you think that the campaign, which is now, you know, nearly two months, has actually achieved what you say you're trying to achieve? It'll take time. It's clear it will take time. It's something that has based in Gaza for a very, very long time. They are seated within the um, civilian uh, population, which I so not dismiss the casualties there, and not in any way, not me nor uh, many other Israelis. We, um, we don't just look away from the sites in Gaza, but this is Hamas is doing. Instead of taking all the resources that were invested there over the years. It invested it in terror, unfortunately. What, will, what we will have to recognize after this war is that the only way to live here in security for both peoples is a political solution for the two-state solution. This is what I've been fighting for, uh, following what Itzhak Rabin has started in uh, 1993. This is what needs to take place. Mm -hmm. But... It has to be with mutual recognition. It goes as much as it does for Israel. It goes for the Palestinians. Um, that's what I wanted to ask you about, actually, the future and what happens when the guns uh, fall silent. And as you correctly say, what happened October 7th was done by Hamas. But I wonder whether you have any thoughts about the latest investigative report uh, and revelations by the New York Times, Ronan Bergman, who has uh, dug deeper into stories that your own press has been talking about, you know, for a long time. He's speaking with Israeli officials on how Netanyahu, quote unquote, propped up Hamas with Qatari funds to try to separate the Gaza Strip from the West Bank and essentially to avoid having to discuss or contemplate or negotiate uh, a Palestinian state. Uh, even apparently when he found out the money was going to the military wing. So a former ally and now a fierce opponent who was a minister, uh, Avigdor Lieberman, member of Knesset, has told Bergman, quote, for Netanyahu, there is only one thing that is really important, to be in power at any cost. To stay in power, he preferred to pay for tranquility. What is your response to this big story in your country now? You, if you go back, you can see my quotes on record along the years saying exactly that. I am in opposition to Netanyahu forever. I am the only one from this uh, current opposition who has never agreed to sit with him because of these things exactly. So certainly, I think this war goes to show that what Netanyahu has tried to do has failed completely and utterly. And he, we need to recognize it. Israelis need to recognize it. But again, uh, Christian, you can't let the Palestinians off the hook. The fact that um, Israel under Netanyahu was going the wrong way does not mean that Palestinians do not have to be accountable to what they're doing and their choices. They too have to demand from their leadership to stop um, educating for um, hate and incitement and to stop robbing them from their rights in order to inflict terror on Israel and the Jews.
Why have you left and why are you leaving as head of the party? And you said shortly thereafter, you will, you know, after your term, you will leave politics altogether. Why, if you are so committed to peace and Labour has been, as you rightly said, you know, the, the, the uh, huge champion of peace, why are you leaving? I know you're not doing well in Parliament, but what is it about the peace camp or leftist politics that, that are, are creating this political dynamic? Well, this will call for a special, but um, to put it in a nutshell, I will say that I, as you said, I'm very committed to the things that I believe in, peace, security, equality, all of those. And right now, I felt that um, I don't have a leverage uh, to bring the party to do better in the um, elections that I believe are coming. I believe they should be coming, and I am doing my best to promote uh, elections in Israel. And so this is why I pushed forward the primaries. I'm calling on the many new forces that are out there uh, to come into politics and to do it through labor, to use this very important infrastructure that I believe labor to be, and to come and leverage it the way that I feel at the moment I cannot do for the sake of the state of Israel. So you have said, you know, you're partly responsible for the state of, well, you're responsible, you're the leader for the state of your party right now. Do you regret in hindsight uh, that you did not go into, you know, coalition or partnership in the previous elections with the left-wing Meretz party? Could you have had more, you know, political weight had you done that, given that you both believe at least in, in some kind of peace solution? I do not believe in what ifs. I am always doing what I believe to do the, um, the most uh, appropriate, the right thing to do. I'm known for uh, following my beliefs, my ideology, and uh, my senses as to what is right to do. Uh, and this is what I'm doing now. Certainly, I'm taking responsibility. I have had the privilege of saving the uh, Labour Party with my friends and uh, bringing it to a big success in the previous elections. It, I, it is my responsibility, the situation of the party right now. This is why I'm taking responsibility and calling on all the new forces out there to come to labor and rebuild it for the sake of the state of Israel. So I assume you believe, because I think you've said it, that you, the, the state of Israel would be stronger and more secure if there was a political solution. I think you said that at the beginning. Anyway, most analysts believe that. But there seems to be no plan, no political plan for after the war. And not just no plan, a plan that seems to be moving towards, at least from Netanyahu's mouth, you know, who knows how long occupation of Gaza, despite what his American allies and others say. Is there any political plan that you can discern is it time now, even now, amidst the horror, to think about a political plan? And how do you see a resolution so that this doesn't happen again and again and again? My point exactly. In order for this not to happen again, we need to start building a structure of a state that has one weapon, and uh, actually, uh, the Palestinian state, that's always, um, that was always known that the, whatever accord was discussed, it included a um, demilitarized state, which it should be. But it should be that way because the thought should be about everyone's security in the region. More weapon never brings more security, rather the opposite. So yes, as difficult as it is in these very, very hard times, and in Israel, the trauma is so, so, so present. It is very hard to explain and to convey to people from the outside how present the trauma is. Still, leadership must come up with a plan that sees a horizon, and a horizon for coexistence that sees everyone's uh, bigger uh, good, larger good. It is possible. I know it is possible. I know there are partners. We just need to be determined to get rid of the blame game, the so long ongoing blame game, and to start thinking of what is the uh, bigger 
uh, picture that we can really not only thrive to, but really get there. Mirav Bihaili, thank you so much indeed for joining us tonight. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And next, of course, it's critical to remember that Palestinians have not had a chance to actually choose their leaders in well over 15 years, whether in Gaza or the West Bank. So who will lead them out of this wilderness and into equality and statehood and security for all? Joining me on this is Nasser Al-Kidwa, the foreign minister for the Palestinian Authority. Now, he was last on this program in 2021 when he was running as an independent in the upcoming Palestinian elections, which, of course, never happened. Welcome back to our program, Nasser Al-Kidwa. I wonder whether you heard a little bit of what um, Mirav Mikhaili was just saying, um, that there needs to be thought right now. The trauma is incredibly raw inside Israel, but leadership demands, you know, thinking about the future. Where are you now in these, in this thinking? You did try to run once as an independent. I wonder what you see as a a way out of this for Palestinian leadership. Yes. uh, Generally, I think that we have Uh, four tasks ahead of us. And when I say we, I mean Israelis, Palestinians, the region, and the international community. The first task is to change, indeed, to change the Palestinian uh, situation and to have new faces, new leadership. The second one is to end the war as fast as possible, very quickly, to end this barbaric war and to end it the right way. And the right way means the application of the nose of of the U.S. administration, for instance. And the third task is to have a new Israeli government, because I think that the days of Mr. Netanyahu had long gone, and it's time now to have a new leadership in Israel as well. But this is for the Israeli side to, 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 to decide upon. And the fourth task is to indeed agree on a a political framework that defines the end result a priori, which is basically Israel and Palestine live side by side and have mutual recognition between the two states. Okay, that sounds sounds all great, but there is the Hamas factor. And clearly, as you heard from Merav Mikhaili, who's on the left, and frankly, everybody in Israel can't even imagine... Uh, a coexistence of the type you you describe with Hamas part of the equation. As you as you heard, and I quoted, uh, Prime Minister Steyer said over the weekend that Hamas is part of the political mosaic. Do you do you believe that that's the case? Well, first of all, I'm not representing the official Palestinian position as you as you referred correctly. Now, uh, with regard to uh, the situation there, I uh, wrote uh, publicly in the early days of the war that there will be three changes. One, 
we are going uh, to have a, a new Israeli government. Two, we are going to have a new Palestinian leadership. Three, we are going to have a new Hamas. This is, I think, the best way to put it. So uh, in, in one hand, we are trying to uh, accommodate the fact that there is an ideology, there is an idea, but at the same time, we know that there is a new situation, a new uh, uh, results of the current war and the uh, positions taken by many important uh, parties, including the United States and the West in general. So I just want to read you some polls and things just to try to understand um, the, 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 the Hamas part of this puzzle. So before October 7th, support for Hamas was in fact low in Gaza. Uh, there was a poll taken, uh, the, the Arab barometer wave, in, and it said basically that, that it's, 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 uh, you know, it's, it's, its level of, of approval was, was falling. And indeed, I spoke to chief, you know, a, a really serious Middle East expert, Fawaz Jerjez, about this, and he agreed. He said, yep, Hamas has failed in government. It's failed in all sorts of things to reach the needs of the actual people, but that it has gained because of what happened on October 7th. So this is a little bit of our exchange. Has Hamas not put itself out of the calling, out of the bidding? The Palestinians want dignity. The Palestinians want emancipation. The, Pal the Palestinians want the end of Israeli occupation. If you ask me now who speaks for the Palestinians, mm -hmm. and it's sad to say it, Hamas now speaks for the Palestinians. Still. Hamas now is the speaks for Palestinians' aspiration. So do you agree with that, that he speaks for the, the it speaks for the Palestinians? And then he, 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 you know, he sort of elaborated by saying, for the aspirations. And I ask you that because the PA, which you are not part of. Part of. Go ahead. There's a difference between Go saying ahead. Hamas speaks for the Palestinians and Hamas speaks for the Palestinian aspirations. Okay, so explain. I speak for okay, Palestinian so aspirations. I mean, many people speak for the Palestinian aspirations. Anyone who uh, support uh, independence, uh, right to self-determination, live in dignity, speaks for uh, Palestinian aspirations. So I, I don't think it's the same thing. In addition, I don't think that Mr. Gerges is, is correct when uh, he, he speaks of the increase in popularity. I don't think this is accurate, at least not in, in, in Gaza. And anyway, uh, myself and many friends, even before the war, uh, advocated the necessity of changing the situation in Gaza, changing the governance in Gaza. And we did have some serious discussions with each other and with Palestinian factions, including Hamas, by the way. And it seems to me that there was some serious progress in that direction. However, of course, the whole thing uh, stopped after after the war. Uh, let me say, in spite of everything, that we are here because of the policies of Mr. Netanyahu. Otherwise, things would have been different long time ago. What do you exactly mean from that? I mean, you know, they say it's whatever policies he's had, he had, Hamas created the slaughter on October 7th. So what do you mean exactly? Fine, but who, who, who caused this situation to start with? Who maintained or encouraged the split between Gaza and, and the West Bank and, and, and encouraged the, the presence of uh, an authority under the control of Hamas in Gaza and an authority under the control of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank as a way to, to, to avoid any serious political solutions? Who kept this situation for that long? Who targeted the Palestinian civilians in previous wars instead of targeting anybody else? That's what, by the way, that's what we are seeing now also in much more larger scale and, and more atrocious way. I mean, the, the amount of, of the, uh, the death of Palestinian civilians, the number of the deaths and the amount of destruction is unbelievable. And I don't think this is the way to deal with Hamas or any other threat to the Israeli security. Can I ask you, because you have, I mean, I'm just saying this myself, a sort of Palestinian pedigree, if you go back to the PLO, you 
were PLO. You're not only that, you were the nephew of PLO leader Yasser Arafat, who did actually make peace with the, with the Israelis during and did recognize the state of Israel uh, during the, uh, the Oslo negotiations. So how is it that the PLO slash PA has become so discredited and that Hamas has gained so much strength uh, and, and tell me what it's like on the West Bank. We, 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 we kind of know what happened in Gaza, but what is it like on the occupied West Bank? Is Hamas a, a big political force there too and a military force? It is a force in the West Bank, thanks to the ineptness of the uh, group that is governing now the Palestinian Authority, thanks again to Mr. Netanyahu and to probably the support of, one, of some Western uh, powers. There is uh, absolute failure on the part of the group in control of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, the last time they went to election was 17, 18 years ago. They destroyed the institutions completely. They uh, violated the, the principle of the rule of law. They violated all kinds of basic rights of the Palestinian people, etc., etc. So this is the situation that has to end. And it has to end because the Palestinian people, the overwhelming majority of the Palestinian people want it to end. Not because Mr. Netanyahu wants that and not because Mr. Biden wants that. It's because the overwhelming majority of the Palestinian people want that and it is going to happen. We are going to change this situation one way or another and hopefully through peaceful and nice way. But if not, there is the harsh way as well. Well, that, that sounds like a bit of a threat. What, what do you mean? Well, I'm not threatening anybody. But again, uh, this situation has to change, hopefully through the yeah. peaceful, nice yeah. way. But if not, then we will have to go the harsh way. The harsh way it doesn't mean military way or doesn't mean bloodletting. It means the, 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 uh, the uh, coming together of many Palestinian factions uh, with a clear political uh, basis for the common work and frankly getting into a situation that might be ugly but necessary to compete with the authority in Ramallah and to compete with the PLO and drive it out once and for all. But hopefully, again, I am really hopeful that it's going to be the first scenario, the peaceful scenario, the scenario that requires some kind of cooperation by the current group in Ramallah. So you are you are you you're reserving a lot of your anger and your criticism for the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah. But what is the mechanism? I mean, there's a terrible war going on. Gaza seems to be completely separate from from anything else. What is the mechanism even within your own, you know, within the Palestinians to even have a, an, an accounting, a political accounting, elections? I mean, something. Is there any mechanism or does it have to await the end of this war? Absolutely, you are absolutely right. The final, the right solution is the general election. There is no doubt about that. But frankly, you and me know that this is almost impossible now in the circumstances. When we have more than a million and a half Palestinian, displaced Palestinians, we can't ask them to come and vote. So we need to create some kind of resemblance of normal life for these people and then go for elections. Until then, we need a transition. And the transition, I think, the peaceful one, might be one that, that means a, a, the existence of fully mandated Palestinian government with Mr. Abbas and, and his group stepping aside and not having any impact or any influence over the affairs of this government, whether with regard to the Gaza Strip or with regard to the West Bank, because it's very important to, to, to affirm the unity of the Palestinian land as well as the unity of the Palestinian people and the Palestinian administration as well. Nasr al-Kidwar, thank you very Nasr much. As we continue these conversations to see what might be possible after this terrible war. Thank you so much. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, 
and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Now, talking of democracy, the United States has a hard time being that standard bearer as Donald Trump is doubling down on his vision of being a dictator. Yep, that is what he told the New York Young Republican Club's annual gala this weekend. I said I want to be a dictator for one day. Jeffrey Goldberg is editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. He recently launched a special edition of the magazine warning of the grave and extreme consequences if Trump were to become president again. And he tells Walter Isaacson now why a second term would be even more dangerous than the first. Thank you, Christian and Jeff Goldberg. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. The Atlantic keeps setting the agenda. It's the one magazine that can do that. Why did you pick doing a special issue like this on the dangers of a Trump presidency? Uh, Because it's, well, a a number of reasons. Uh, One, uh, I think that a second Trump presidency, based off of what we all saw on January 6th, uh, I think a Trump presidency, another Trump presidency, poses an existential threat to American democracy. I'm not making a partisan point. If Trump were a registered Democrat and did what he did, we would say the same thing. Uh, I think it's not too late to try to make these sets of arguments. It's, um, you know, it's it's actually more than 20 different writers taking on their subject area expertise. So we have pieces on immigration and national security uh, the staffing of the military, the civil service, Supreme Court issues. Um, but it's really ultimately about uh, a candidate for president, a former president who is a current candidate for president, who does not respect uh, American democratic ideals and democratic norms. And it's uh, it's worth calling out and it's worth calling out in one place and in, in one package uh, so that uh, so that people can can see it. I, I don't make the assumption but people in, in media, in politics here in Washington, where I am, you know, we, we we sometimes assume that everybody is following events the way that we do. And but what we know also is that at this stage in a presidential campaign, a presidential cycle, people aren't paying regular attention. And so um, I thought it would be good to remind people before the primary process begins uh, of, of what happened the last time around. You say, as The Atlantic always does, that you're not part of any party or clique. But one of the things you all write is that the Republican Party now has mortgaged itself uh, to Donald Trump. Explain that. Yeah. Well, so my argument, I I think the institutional argument and my individual argument um, always been that uh, one prerequisite for a healthy democracy is to have at least a strong, vibrant liberal party and a strong, vibrant conservative party. You want to have other streams of thought? Great. Other parties? Great. But but that's that's the sort of a, a minimum. Um, and what we've seen, unfortunately, in the Republican Party is that it's become less a kind of hotbed of interesting conservative ideas, right, and policy prescriptions uh, that you can take and then hold up against liberal policy ideas and prescriptions and then argue it out in the in the marketplace, um, it's become a cult of personality and it's subsumed itself um, to uh, to Mar-a-Lago in a, in a very, very unhealthy and to me, un-American way. And and so uh, we're we're in this shape we're in, not because Donald Trump is the putative Republican nominee, but because too many Republicans who know better are going along with this kind of cult of personality. And, and, you know, you know this and I know this. Uh, there are a lot of Republicans, uh, not just the Mitt Romneys and Chris Christie's and so on, who are actually calling out Donald Trump. A lot of Republicans who aren't calling him out, who know what he's about and what happened on January 6th and what happened before and after January 6th um, and are upset about it. But they're they want to keep their jobs or they're scared of harassment and and retaliation. And so they don't say anything. And these are the for instance, these are the kind of senators who knew better, you know, the Rob Portman's of the world who um, didn't vote uh, to convict in the second impeachment trial, even though they knew that Donald Trump had fomented an anti-constitutional rebellion against the settled election results of 2020. 
You have about two dozen people writing in it, and one of them is David Fromm, who makes that point, that it will be a revenge presidency, that the, he'll take the FBI and weaponize it uh, and do things. And I thought that was a little bit overblown, but he just came out in the past few days and said it outright. I don't think it's overblown. And, and one of the reasons I don't think it's overblown is I just spent a, a long period reporting on a on a large article that appeared a couple months ago on General Mark Milley, the now former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who became um, a real thorn in Donald Trump's side because Milley realized um, as he was serving uh, in the Pentagon in that top job, he realized that Trump's loyalty was not to the Constitution, but himself. Um, and after my article came out about Mark Milley uh, and about his relationship with Donald Trump, Trump said that he said this plainly on social media. He said that um, Mark Milley should be tried for treason for the things that he said and done. Um, so, like, I, I believe in taking people at their word. Donald Trump will come into if he comes into office, he will authorize his Justice Department to investigate Mark Milley. Remember, Donald Trump is a person who threatened in his first term, he threatened to call back to active duty generals Stanley McChrystal and William McRaven to retired four-star generals, you know, incredible American patriots and, and, and soldiers. He threatened to call them back to active duty, which you can do as president, um, in order to court-martial them. Why? Because they were critical of his leadership. Uh, there's nothing secret here. There's there's no, I don't think there's anything overblown. He will blow open the norm that has existed for a very long time, uh, that especially since the Watergate era, that the attorney general operates autonomously from the political operation of the White House. Right. That's attorney general. Attorney general always annoy presidents. Right. Because they are in the cabinet, but they're running their own show. And the reason they're running their own show is because they have to have prosecutorial independence, right? Donald Trump's going to get rid of that. He's promised to get rid of that. So I, look, I don't, I don't, you know, you don't want to be a uh, chicken little on the one hand, but on the other hand, you don't want to downplay the threat, especially when he's articulated the threat. Your article about General Mark Milley uh, was very revealing, especially since we thought that the adults in the room were going to be our safety net uh, in the first Trump presidency. Uh, tell me about those adults in the room, what they're saying now, and whether you think there will be adults in the room uh, if there is a second Trump presidency. The whole point of a second Trump presidency from Trump's perspective is that there not be adults, quote unquote, adults in the room. He does not want a, a team of rivals. He does not want serious advisors who say to him, yeah, maybe you shouldn't do that. He wants people who will agree with him. Um, the the adults in the room the first time around, and those include, you know, Rex Tillerson and James Mattis, the first secretary of defense, and Bill Barr, the attorney general, John Kelly, his uh, DHS secretary, and then his chief of staff, and so on. They, to a person, believe that a second Trump presidency would be a threat to the Constitution of the United States. They've all said it publicly. I mean, it's kind of astonishing that they're not heard. Because in ordinary, if this was, if ordinary political physics was applying here, the rules of physics were applying, you know, when, when all, when all of your cabinet or most of your cabinet from your first term comes out and say that you're an active danger to the Republic, voters would pay attention to that. Um, and by the way, we're not talking about, you know, rabid left, we're not talking about the faculty of Oberlin, you know, coming out and saying that Donald Trump is a danger to democracy or like the mayor of, you know, Portland, Oregon. You're talking about, retired Marine generals, right? You're talking about pretty tough guys, um, Republicans, who are saying that this guy is dangerous. They did a good job for as long as they lasted in checking some of the worst impulses of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump has tremendous resentment for them because he realizes that in many cases, they he was outfoxed by them. And that's what he doesn't want to have happen the second term. It's going to be, it's going to be MAGA from, from day one. And and what John Kelly did uh, alone 
throwing himself you know, into the gears of the Trump administration to prevent some crazy things from happening. Um, you know, it, it, again, if ordinary rules applied, you know, John Kelly would be getting, uh, you know, awards from Congress for for doing what he did. So that raises who might be in a second a Trump presidency. McKay Coppins, uh, you know, one of your great staff writers, speculated a bit on it. I've seen Axios speculating now. It seems a bit like trying to handicap a dog race. But think through who might be in a second uh, Trump presidency. Right. Just to name two names, obviously, Stephen Miller. Um, we know Stephen Miller as the immigration czar uh, and a real hardliner on immigration and other issues from the first Trump White House. There's a very, very good chance that Trump would nominate him to be uh, Secretary of Homeland Security. If the Senate were constructed in a way that wouldn't allow for him to get through, people are speculating that he could be the chief of staff of the White House. Um, so you start with a, a Stephen Miller, who's a real true believer, a real hardcore loyalist, and who believes that he's there to serve Donald Trump, not the American people or the Constitution. Um, second example would be Rick Grinnell, um, who basically was this Twitter troll who came to prominence in the Trump administration, um, worked in the intelligence uh, area, became a, an ambassador, um, and is, uh, is you know, Trumpist all the way down. And when Trump, the first day in office, says, you know what, I think we should pull out of NATO, you're not going to get Rick Grinnell in the White House saying, you know what, maybe we shouldn't pull out of NATO, and here's why. You're going to have a person who says, yes, sir, I'll pull out of NATO. We'll go do it. Ann Applebaum in your special issue addresses that issue of pulling out of NATO. Uh, and we know that Donald Trump in the next term, if he gets one, wouldn't be supporting Ukraine. Tell me what the ramifications of all that would be to America's foreign policy. Well, we would be inviting the dark ages across the planet. Again, not to be uh, overly dramatic about it, but we're already having, we're already in a bit of a democratic recession, right? Uh, Russia is feeling its oats uh, in in Ukraine, and you know the Ukrainians don't have them on the on the ropes the way a lot of people hope they would. Uh, they're in the fight, but it's not going extremely well. Uh, she and China, the North Koreans, the Venezuelans, uh, Hamas. Uh, as another example, um, there are a lot of powerful organizations and countries right now that are run in a very anti-democratic way. And, um, you, you know, Donald Trump has made it very clear that he admires strongmen. He said it. He loves Orban in Hungary. He thinks Putin and she are great, strong leaders. Uh, so for those of us in the West who think that democracy is a flawed system, but it's the best one we have, uh, you know, it's going to be tough times. And America, you know, and you know this, you know, from 1945 onward, America set the rules of the road that the rules-based international order post-World War II was established and maintained by the United States. Donald Trump is the first figure of his level of importance to fundamentally question whether America has to play that role or America should play that role or that's a role worth playing. So we're looking at some pretty serious consequences of a Trump victory. George Packer writes in the special issue about the press and says, you know, unlike Putin, he's not going to have to poison members of the press because he's so undermined uh, public credibility, uh, uh, the public's belief in the press. Also, though he would probably use the presidency to go after uh, some of the media. What do, you, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think, you know, Steve Bannon and Cash Patel, people who are in the loyalist camp, uh, have said just this week that they want to prosecute journalists um, for fake news or whatever the, whatever the make-believe charge is. Um, I would fully expect them to try to change the laws or use existing laws to punish and persecute uh, journalists they don't like. I mean, we are we're heading into something that uh, seems incredibly dangerous. Um, I just the, the what I tell people is, by the way, you know, in, and I remember the two of us having this conversation about 
terrorist groups. Yeah. When they tell you they're going to do something, believe them. Right. Or when Putin says, you know, Ukraine is part of Russia and doesn't exist as, you know, a lot of people say, well, he doesn't mean that. It's a metaphor. He's just saber rattling. Listen to people when they tell you what they're going to do. It's safest to listen to people. And if people, if Trump and people around Trump are saying that they're going to try to prosecute journalists for exercising their First Amendment rights, they're going to prosecute journalists for exercising their First Amendment rights. You know, Greg Sargent, writing in the Washington Post a few days ago, said something about enough with this fatalism. We're overdoing it. And I think he he quoted a scholar saying creating an aura of destiny around the leader galvanizes his supporters by making the movement seem stronger than it is. What do you say to that? Um, I admire Greg Sargent's work. I disagree with him on this. I think it's our job to highlight the the threat. I don't think it's in, I don't think it's inevitable. I think what's inevitable or I would almost bet money on is that he's going to get Trump is going to get the nomination. Um, I don't see that going any other way, though. Who knows? Um, uh, I don't see his election as a foregone conclusion. Uh, that's why we call the issue if Trump wins, not when Trump wins. Jeffrey Goldberg, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And finally tonight, a treat. He is the acclaimed composer behind some of the most recognizable movie scores of the last 100 years. From Indiana Jones to Star Wars, Jaws to Jurassic Park, Saving Private Ryan to Schindler's List. John Williams' career spans more than six decades and 53 Oscar nominations. At 91 years old, he is the most nominated person alive at the Academy Awards. Now, he's teaming up yet again with musical phenomenon and Sophie Mutter, a four-time Grammy Award-winning violinist, after they collaborated on two albums together already. Mutter is celebrating her 60th year with a performance of some of Williams' most iconic pieces, like this one. They join me live from the Heinz Hall in Pittsburgh to preview their concert tomorrow night for us. John Williams and Anne-Sophie Mutter, welcome to the program. Let, let me just state the obvious. Anne-Sophie, you are most well known for, you know, playing the classics, you know, the Bach, Beethoven, Schubert, and John Williams, so much honored and well known as a movie, you know, composer. Can you tell me first, John, what sparked the collaboration and the connection? Well, the connection was a very personal one. Uh, Anna Sophie was married to Andre Previn, who we all remember as a great composer, pianist, conductor, formerly the conductor of this house, Heinz Hall in Pittsburgh, USA. And I've known Andre, I knew him for 70 years. He was like a brother to me, way before he was world famous and we were kids playing the piano. He was always a little better than I was at most of those <laughs> things, but encouraged me and almost was, acted as a mentor in a way. And when he married Anna Sophie, who I knew from her playing and her recordings, but whom I'd never met, I became very interested in her always and knew her with Andre in those years also. And so he is, Andre is the real connection that brought us together personally and musically. I can, I'll let Anna Sophie talk also maybe a little bit about how we got together musically. Yeah. Uh, yeah something to do with Christmas cookies. <laughs> yes, eventually. Yeah. So uh, I grew up at the <laughs> foot of the Black Forest, and when the first uh, Star Wars came into the theaters in 1978, I was totally blown away by the depth of the music, by its incredible um, richness of character and the light motifs, and over the years, how well... Uh, that music uh, developed into even more because it had such a sophistication in itself and such a personal way to express characters. And I became um, a deep John Williams fan 
And I was also following his uh, classical scores, of course. But, you know, from the Black Forest to Hollywood, it's, it's not just around <laughs> the corner. <laughs> so I knew that uh, Andre and John were um, very good friends. And so I was the one who always asked Andre, couldn't you ask John to write something <laughs> for me? And then we met some 11 years ago at Tanglewood. And I asked John, and you were as usually very uh, gracious and but pretty much turned the idea down and and now the cookie moment is coming into <laughs> into the story i think you have to tell that john well the story very quickly is <laughs> I, I actually forgot about her request to write something and received in the mail a package from munich i knew no one in munich and it were christmas cookies <laughs> and they were from anna sophie this made me very guilty so i felt i had to write something for that woman And so I wrote a little piece called Markings, yeah. which she enjoyed and performed around the world. So that was in 2017? Uh, that, fla yeah. that flattered me sufficiently <laughs> and encouraged me and inspired me to do more. Well, uh, it's really great. It's great to see such huge talents, different styles, all, but huge talents collaborating. And Anne-Sophie, you said, you know, Star Wars is what sparked your, your, your fangirl-ism. And now you have John composed yeah. for yeah. the two of you. you. It's called the Williams Concert Number yeah. Two. You are playing Anne-Sophie, and what we're going to do is play a little excerpt right now. You talked about this concerto as being one that you could only think of one person playing, and that was Anna Sophia. John, what was so, you know, special about this music for for her? Uh, uh, Christian, uh, we mentioned a moment ago a, sh a little short piece, the first thing I wrote for Anna Sophia, and I listened to her play it, and there were mannerisms that she displayed in this piece, rhythmic proclivities, rhythmic uh, uh, little impulses to do. And the same thing with phrasing, a little portamento, a little slide, or a little uh, espressivo, we would say. And so when I set the time to write the concerto, I was thinking, the real inspiration was Anna Sophie, because I, I remember these mannerisms of her and of her playing and her bowing technique, and deliberately put some of it into concerto, almost literally, not quite, but, but so in a way I was trying to imitate what I thought her style was in this particular rhythmic context where I was in the writing at that moment. And so in a way, Anna Sophie is a co-authoress of the piece, if you like, in some respects. Wow, that's a huge honor. <laughs> and, and what is it like, Anna Sophie, to actually play the music of a living composer? I mean, let's face it, all the, 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 the classics you play, you know, the composers are no longer with us. What is it like? Yeah. Yeah, it's always particularly exciting and very challenging uh, to work with the living composer. In the case of John, it's ever more so exciting because the diversity of his uh, musical uh, universe is totally unique. And so uh, for me, playing Ray's theme, which you have rewritten for violin uh, across the stars, Hedwig, many others, uh, Cinderella Liberty, is as important to me as an artist in finding the right tone, the right personality, the right style, as, of course, um, receiving this fabulous second violin concerto, which I have championed around the world literally mm -hmm. in the last uh, two years. It's a huge honor, but there's always the risk of failure and not satisfying no. the wishes and dreams of the composer. So... You know, um, I'm happy that John still talks to me <laughs> well, I... and, and that we will have this wonderful occasion here in Pittsburgh. And, and really, it's, it's the greatest gift, of course, the best excuse one can have to, you know, ask John to conduct a uh, part of a concerto, just use my 60th birthday yeah. as an excuse. It, it, it's, a, it's a good excuse. Really, it's the greatest present I, c I could dream of. 
Let's play. Let's play an excerpt. Sorry, go ahead, John. Initially, a little concerned. Yeah. Wonderful. No, well, very quickly. Uh, that I said to Andre, you think Anna Sophie, she's from Germany, she's a classical artist, she will never play Cinderella Liberty with the jazz inflection that it needs. And he simply said she can play anything. And I discovered she can. So let's play uh, her playing uh, uh, this excerpt from Schindler's List. saw your countenance change. You got really pensive, really, you know, thoughtful listening to this. Obviously, this film was about, you know, the worst horrors uh, that we can imagine. And it's very different from, you know, playing Star Wars or Harry Potter, you know, Jaws, all of that. Yes. What were you thinking, John, as you just heard that theme that you composed for, the, for Spielberg's film Schindler's List? Well, the subject of something is always now going to be with us close in our hearts and in our souls. And I think there's a, particularly in that, that piece, there's a spiritual component of it that uh, is something that we all share, and it is a component that is beyond speech or words. It has, some, it has more to do with our connection with the cosmos as, peop- as, in, as creatures with a mind, uh, with creatures that have a sense of something more than, corp- than the corpor- corporal life, uh, and that is our spiritual one. And I think music takes us to, that, to those places, subjects like the beautiful film of Schindler's List and the wonderful acting and writing in it all conspire to create something more wonderful and more beautiful than any of us can do as individuals. Mm-hmm. It becomes a cosmic, spiritual kind of of uh, a moment. And uh, this also describes live, live musical performances like here in Pittsburgh Symphony or in Boston Symphony, wherever we do these things. So it's, it's a different part of our lives. It's not a material part, it's a spiritual part. So, and uh, that was the opportunity that gave me uh, in the film of Schindler's List to write what I did. And because it's very you... simple, it's very mm-hmm. direct, it's very... Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just wanted to say, because you're the elder statesman as we speak to you right now, I wonder, thinking about all the incredible scores that you have have created, um, do you have a favorite and what would you like your legacy to be? Well, I don't really have a a, a favorite, Christian. You know, my personality is such that that I think there are some pretty good things in, in most or all of the scores. But there are also things that I think to myself I might have done a little bit better if I'd had another chance to do it. Uh, but without giving an excuse to film writers, it's a little bit like journalism. <laughs> you have to write the notes you want to write and have them played right away and they're recorded before they're, even the ink is dry. Uh, so uh, and my, my legacy, I will join Andre Previn in just saying I'd like to be remembered as a as a f- fairly decent working musician <laughs> who was dedicated to the, the nuts and bolts of writing those little notes with a pencil that musicians like Anna Sophie bring to life. Uh, but what would yeah. we be without your genius, John? Nothing. It's going to we be... nothing to express anything. It's going to be a formidable <laughs> concert <laughs> tomorrow. The lucky people at Heinz Hall in, uh, in, in, in Pennsylvania. Look, we thank you very much. We could talk for a lot more time, but unfortunately we're out of time now. But thanks thank you for, uh, for being with us. It was wonderful. great. Thank you, Christian. John Williams, Anna-Sophie Muta, thank you both so oh, much. Great. And that is it for now. Goodbye from London. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.